0: To another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh yes, uh, it's good to be sober. It's good to be positive. Uh, not always easy to maintain balance in both categories, uh, but today, at any rate, <laughs> here with my friend David, uh,
1: managed to be both sober and positive. How you doing, my friend? Ah, I'm doing okay. I um am sober and positive at the same time, uh, most of the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I um, have been sober and negative. I have yeah, been uh, positive and not sober. But <laughs>
1: the, the the not sober positive seem to be easier to pull off. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm doing I'm doing well. I had um. I kept my my grandsons this weekend. My daughter and son-in-law were in the moving process and uh, mm. Patrick and Jackson 3 years old and 18 months old. Oh my good lord in heaven. It's like chasing sand crabs. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> just everything that you think you could have thought of that you put away or plugged or taped shut or you know could have yeah, yeah, done. Yeah. Uh, they found an end around and I'm really thinking, you know, we should like uh, sub them out to the government or something because they could find <laughs> <laughs> they could find the back door to any secret uh, that there is. But uh, we had a great, great time. Um, we, uh, you know, we tried to watch the Grinch with uh, Patrick, but uh, the Jim <laughs> Carrey Grinch and uh, Patrick uh, was uh, he he likes the Grinch storybook, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah. we th- we thought, well, we'll brave the um, we'll brave the the, the movie, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and he, <laughs> Jim Carrey's face comes on, you know, like within probably I guess thirty seconds, yeah, yeah And it's a yeah. big close up of the Grinch, and Patrick was turn it off, turn it off. It's the Christmas monster. It's the Christmas monster. Oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> so we had to turn off the Christmas monster and uh, go back to monster truck videos for the remainder of the two days that oh. uh, that we all shared with him but it was good but i am exhausted i am old i'm too old yeah so uh as we always say it's why god made it so younger people i think can bring the children into the world (laughs) right exactly yeah uh, Yeah. how about you or how are things down in sunny um amelia island and yeah
0: and it has been sunny today it's overcast and it's it's chilly. It's going to be in the 50s today, but we've got beautiful weather.
1: <laughs> well, it was 27 and, uh, this morning here. So can...
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're close to the grandkids here. Yeah. Uh, some of the grandkids, the youngest ones. Yeah. Uh, so we've had, uh, we've had babysitting time, grandkid time, given our son and daughter-in-law some opportunity to go off on dates in a way they don't often have the opportunity to do. Yeah. And while these kids are older than yours, they're eight and five, not three and 18 months
1: still. Uh, yeah. Does it get easier? Yeah. I mean, I mean, do they, do they fight? Yeah. less? like they don't by that age, they don't bite each other. Is that?
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, well, they, they, they still will squabble and they'll talk nonstop. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, me, and we're, we're Ali and I are waiting for the arrival of three more grandkids. And oh I'm my! Come down here, hopefully in another ten days to fly down to visit us for a week. Although everything's in doubt, David. Now, yeah, because of the new uh, COVID variant that's out there. Yeah, it seems to be replicating rapidly here in Florida. We had told the kids we'd take them to a theme park. I don't know whether that's going to happen. Yeah, um, and. Uh, So here, Allie and I are, you know, we're in Amelia Island for three months. And, uh, you know, yesterday was Sunday. I don't have a local church to go to. Uh, You know, I don't know the churches here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have been doing church online. So we did church again online yesterday. Actually did. This is a strange thing. We did an online candlelight service.
1: Wow! So you just uh, sit with your yeah. own little.
0: Yeah, we didn't even have candles, but, uh, <laughs> but we watched everybody else light their candles and uh-huh. listened to the music. Yeah, and uh, you know it was it was it was kind of like being with the community on uh, you know the Sacred Night, but it did kind of not. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: It. It's this kind of uh, isolation thing. I am grateful that I've got uh, online meetings to go to Samson society meetings. I'm flirting with the idea of finding a local AA meeting around here where I could just go be in the same room with some other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. I mean, AA welcomes all uh, aspects of um, folks uh, dealing with various things. And you might. uh, I think I qualify
0: (laughs) if, if I really do. I used well, to say that it, you know, I I went to AA meetings for years and never spoke up uh-huh. because you know the only qualification for membership is a desire to stop drinking and and I didn't meet the criteria. But I think <laughs> these days I do meet the criteria.
1: <laughs> well, uh, then it would be helpful, and 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 just as uh, it establishes some recovering people around you, you know.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. uh because I know you're missing your, your walk, uh, friends. Yeah, and, uh,
0: I am. I know I'm still, I'm still walking with my friends from, uh, Tennessee, but you know, by phone, well, I'm still getting one or two good conversations a day. That yeah. really helps.
1: And I know, I know you guys haven't, you know, landed, um, in a church there or anything, but, um, yeah. when I first got sober, AA, even though I worked at a church, AA was mm-hmm. really my spiritual connection yeah, to people. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, You know, it really, I mean, we didn't have candlelight uh, meetings <laughs> or anything at Christmas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But uh, it was, it was my spiritual connection. And I struggled for a long time about the way it reshaped um, some of my views on what I had traditionally been um, uh, buying into as my belief system.
0: Right. I, you know, had, had, I've had the very same experience.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I, I hear, we hear this over and over from people in recovery, Christians in recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I went through a couple of stages. Uh, when I first showed up, I thought, oh, these people need Jesus and they need, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I've been sent as a missionary and I'm going <laughs>
1: to... That's right. Yeah. That's the uniqueness of a, of a evangelical addict. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I'll turn it into a mission field. (laughs) That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and then as it began, first of all, as I experienced uh, the spiritual presence in the room Mm -hmm. and uh, to be just marinating in that much humility and kindness and empathy and love and grace and acceptance and hope, yeah, and and a faith that you know distressingly for me in the beginning was not very clearly defined, yeah. And I'd spend a lifetime where we just get together and going kind to of work on our faith definitions, right, uh, right, and yeah. Make sure that we were all believing the right thing, yeah. Uh, now this was different, mm-hmm. and uh, and then for me as is very often the case church by contrast uh began to feel it, it, I didn't feel when I went to church that my needs were being met or that I was perhaps I here's what here's I think this is it it it, it didn't dawn on me right away it took me a while to bring my real self to the 12 step meeting Mm-hmm. I showed up and experimented with several personas to try to find the one that would win acceptance, mm-hmm. only to find out that, you know, kind of the one rule was, don't bring a persona, just bring <laughs> right.
1: yourself. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, and uh, and the relief of not having to to dress metaphorically for the twelve step meeting, but just to show up. Hmm. Uh. Uh contrasted with kind of this enduring feeling that when I go to church I do have to dress up physically right. or metaphorically right uh, um, yeah uh, but at the same time I must say that my 12 step experience saved my faith
1: mm-hmm.
0: it re- reinvigorated my faith changed it mm-hmm. quite dramatically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time I wandered into a 12 step meeting Although I was still going to church faithfully and still being a visible member, uh, you know, of the community, I was mostly going through the motions.
1: Mm -hmm. There
0: wasn't there wasn't much alive left in it. Yeah. And uh, now to get some new life. Yeah. Changed everything. Changed the Bible for me. I will tell you that that became a whole freaking different book.
1: Well, yeah, that's exactly. yeah. 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 I think it absolutely did for me as well. And I think the thing that recovery and, and the 12 step meetings helped me with was that I didn't always have to be right, Yeah, but I could right. be, but I could be honest, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, I, I, uh, I, I found that a lot of the things that I had been surrounded with in my faith system was confusing faith with certainty. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. um, you know and so anyway I yeah at, at, and then the whole desperation thing you know mm-hmm. um, because I felt very desperate to be in the rooms of people that knew how to um, access God in the way that they did and and trust their sobriety mm-hmm. to it um, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to be around people who just wanted to have a, an experience and um, and in my job at that time wanted me to give it to them in some ways, Oh yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 and, uh, yeah. so yeah, it's a, it's a, so why can't church be, uh, more like an AA meeting? <laughs> How's that for <first> Okay, <laughs>
0: Well, that's a great segue into, uh, today's guest. This is a conversation you had with a good friend of yours. Um, I was not able to be in on the conversation, but I got to listen to it afterwards. And, Uh, Loved so much. I know our listeners are really going to enjoy this one. When we come back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And I am excited today to... Have a guest who is an author, um, and he's also a uh, professor of religious studies at Rhodes College. Um, he's an adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, he writes, and contributes to the Christian Century and Huff Post, and he's the author of uh, a book that I'm excited to talk about today, and it's called "Why Can't Church Be More Like an AA Meeting." Uh, And the subtitle is, And Other Questions Christian Asked About Recovery. And our guest today is Stephen Haynes. And Steve and I uh, actually go back to meeting at, a, I think, a conference. The first time we met was a conference in Colorado. Is that right,
2: Steve? Right. Yep. 2016, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was just embarking on um, getting into this uh, new lane of uh, work and vocation. And um, we were there uh, basically uh, as uh, people exploring how to bring recovery into a context that makes it more friendly to faith communities. I guess, would that be, would that be fair, Steve?
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah. Well, anyway, we've had a couple of dinners when he's gotten into Nashville here and there. And Mm -hmm. so, um, I was excited to see his name on this book and wanted to get him, uh, to join us. And, um, so Steve, welcome to the podcast and thank you for writing this book, um, Those of us that have come out of faith systems and faith communities or are in still Christian community in some form, um, I think early in our recovery probably have asked this question: Mm -hmm. you know, why can't the church be more like an AA meeting? And I think Mm -hmm. my own experience when I first started attending recovery meetings, and that was, you know, back in 2005, um, was that I had not experienced that kind of honesty. and vulnerability among people. And um, I wasn't I, th- I wasn't even sure I knew how to handle that, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still getting used to the idea that my persona had gotten me in trouble. And, you know, to go in and hear people just put things out there that are real and raw and uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're true expressions. They weren't telling me what uh, I thought they should think. Um, mm-hmm. They were telling me what they really felt. And then they had room for people to... Um, Experience that in an encouraging way. So, um, what brought you into the into the recovery realm? First of all, we usually like for our guests to share some personal attachment to recovery because most of us just don't wake up and decide that's a great (laughs) great place to spend our time. Uh, So, what brought you into this whole deal?
2: Well, it's an interesting story. Maybe typical for some people. My wife went into treatment in 2008, and uh, after dealing unsuccessfully with some long deferred trauma. And uh, so she had a family week at her treatment center and I went for that. And as often happens, family members are sort of um, brought into the process and, and asked to look at their own stuff. And for me, that was a kind of an epiphany. I realized when I came back home, I realized I had a lot of work to do. And I got into a counseling practice that really focused uh, was twelve step focused, and um, one of the requirements or expectations for for being involved in that work was that you attend twelve step meetings. So I started to do that, and then when, when my wife got back from treatment, we were trying to put our marriage back together, and we it was suggested that we attend a twelve step meeting called Recovering Couples Anonymous (RCA), and we did. And um, to make a long story short, it sort of saved our marriage and. We got very involved. We went weekly. And as I describe in the book, you know, the, the question in the title arose for me personally as I, we went to these meetings on Saturday night, these Recovering Couples Anonymous meetings, and there was such a spiritual high. And then we'd go to our church on Sunday morning, and it was what a lot of people can identify with, that everybody was fine, everybody looked good, everything mm-hmm. was nicely choreographed nobody really said what was going on and that the dissonance was just really difficult for me. I really struggled with it. And right. it, it led to me wondering if other people had asked similar questions and had similar experiences. And it turns out that of course, lots of people had and <laughs> that they went back at least to the 1940s where people started to, whether it was pastoral counselors or, you know, just observers or people who had, Experience in both places um, struggled with this question. Wrote about it. You know why? Why is it that a, 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 an organization, a fellowship, a movement that has its roots in the church and in, in you know American Christianity um, sort of moved away, but but seems to have preserved something about the Christian movement and Christian fellowship that is absent from a lot of churches. It's a it's a real conundrum. Mm-hmm. so I was, I was uh, surprised and pleased to learn that a lot of people had been asking this question. A lot of people had had exactly the experience that, that you did, David, which is they encounter a kind of um, spiritual community, a community of, of, um, of openness and transparency that they only wish existed in the church for them. And then they get they feel very torn. They feel mm-hmm. like a lot of their spiritual needs are met in a twelve-step fellowship that are not met in church, and they don't know what to do with that. Do they just sort of transfer their loyalties? Do they try to, um, you know, reform their church or make their church recovery-friendly? And there are all sorts of ways to approach that. So mm-hmm. I just sort of entered this area of um, of sort of spiritual growth and spiritual ferment that i really had had no, no concept of before my own personal um sort of um uh connections with recovery and and once i realized this you know as a researcher and a writer i just became very obsessed with trying to write something really largely for my own um satisfaction that sort of explained the relationship between the church and 12 step recovery and and what Sort of churches were um, making an effort to uh, be recovery friendly and to mm-hmm. accommodate people who had found recovery, who had had a spiritual wa- awakening. And because they had had that awakening, felt very out of place in mm-hmm. their church communities. So that's kind of how it happened for me.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well and as I recall I think from the uh the intro of the book you and your wife were both in church leadership was that right yeah, while you were right. kind of going through all this so that made it a little um more interesting too I remember the first year of my uh of my 12 step meetings uh no one ever knew where I was at noon because I was on staff at a church and I didn't want I wasn't sure if I'd actually yeah. be safer being caught leaving a strip club than an yeah. AA meeting at that point. Right, And, uh, so, you know, you, so you guys were still in, you were in leadership trying to juggle how much persona, I guess, to, um, yeah. still try to maintain and how close to get to people and all of that.
2: Yeah. And we were also separated at the time we were undergoing what what people call a therapeutic separation after after she returned mm-hmm. home and so nobody knew what to do about that how to how to even talk about that they just assumed that it was a sort of first stage of divorce and so mm. you know it was there was this cone of silence around us and so you know it was weird on Saturday nights we'd be we'd feel very connected and transparent with people we hardly knew yeah and then on Sunday mornings, we'd be among people we had known for years. We just felt completely detached from. It was just a weird feeling. Um, Mm -hmm. It's changed a little bit because over time, I've come to know more and more people in our church who are in recovery. Mm -hmm. um, Which means that we have a, a kind of language and a connection that, that is unusual. I would not say, however, that our church is recovery friendly because most people who are in recovery don't want to be outed in church. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, people are pretty, it's pretty clear that, that my wife and I are in recovery, but there are others who aren't sure that they, they aren't sure what the results, what the repercussions would be if that became well-known. So it's a weird situation. There are quite a few people in our church, including leaders who are in recovery. Not many of them are, you know, mm-hmm. public about that. hmm
1: it- Do you feel, Steve, that the, um, I mean, in the book, you talk about the fact that, um, desperation is maybe the difference. Like people are desperate to be in an AA meeting or at a, at a 12 step meeting or recovery meeting of some kind. Uh, we are not all that desperate to be at church. We're not that desperate to go. We're not, you know, we, well, I've got a whole litany of, uh, past, uh, experiences where my recovery and my church colliding, happened. Um, and I realized, I think one of the disillusioning things I believed, um, I was starting to understand was that for many people, church is an experience Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and, um, not maybe a place to go with your most, um, broken, vulnerable, Mm -hmm. um, issues. I mean, what, what is the, what is the deal with desperation in the church and desperation in the 12 step world?
2: Yeah. Well, there's this—you you put your finger on it. You know, desperation, brokenness is the is the ticket in in a twelve-step environment, right? It's it's mm-hmm. what qualifies you to be there. And even if you don't want to divulge all of that right at the beginning, the fact that you walked in suggests that you know you're not on a winning streak, as people like to say in the meetings. Um, mm-hmm. Things things are going going wrong, and so for us, we had the gift of desperation. My wife and I, and that is that we were convinced that our family was going to come apart if we didn't you know, take some drastic steps to get some help. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we made Saturday nights a priority. You know, we, we moved heaven and earth to get there. Mm -hmm. We got a babysitter and all that. Um, We didn't miss unless we were out of town. Church, not, not, didn't feel so crucial, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. what do we really get from it? You know, it was important Mm -hmm. to us in some ways, but it was awkward. People didn't know. People knew that my wife had gone away. They knew that many of them knew we were separated. They didn't really know what to say about that or how to help us or mm. how much to even uh, acknowledge that. Um, so, yeah, that you're right. That gift, gift of desperation is, um, I think, what makes a 12 step room so special. Um, it makes you really listen carefully to what people are saying. You realize that they have some wisdom. They have some experience, strength and hope that you need. Mm-hmm. And um, you, your your ears are really um, open, and your eyes are open. You want to see. Is there anything here that people have found that that I need? Most of us don't feel that way when we go to church, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't.
1: <laughs> well, right, exactly. Um, and I think that um, it's interesting because when when we when we reduce maybe church to an experience rather than maybe what real community is or could be, or supposed to be, um, then we're going to miss all that. Um, How do you, what do you say about the fact that it seems like sometimes churches are more focused on behavior, changing Mm -hmm. bad behavior, changing harmful behavior. And I found that in the 12 step community, they were, they were helping me see why resentment was harmful. They weren't just telling me mm-hmm. not to be resentful or they were right. showing me why my gratitude need, needed to outweigh my resentment. So I didn't yeah. um, go back to some things I didn't want to be doing anymore. And um, yeah. I, I feel like sometimes the church is really more focused on stop, stop it. Is that, right. I mean, that might be unfair and, it, and it's certainly a big generalization, but what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, You know, one of the things that surprises people about AA when they have um, some experience with it is that there's not a lot of discussion of alcohol per se. It's really not about alcohol. It's about Mm -hmm. how to live a life that doesn't require you to, um, you know, change your mood through a a substance, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's really not about what you do or don't do. It's it's more about your spiritual fitness. And as Mm -hmm. you say, part of that is you know, controlling resentments. Um, mm-hmm. You know, acknowledging your part in things that that have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, another example is I I uh, I run a men's group, or I, I convene a men's group at our church and have for years, and it's kind of overlapped with my entrance into recovery, and it's really interesting because I find the difference between a twelve step meeting and and what I do with with guys on Wednesday nights is that there's this natural instinct for my church friends to fix things, to give suggestions, mm-hmm. to minimize things, convince me it's really not that bad or mm-hmm. it'll get better, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first instinct. And that's that's a very churchy kind of supportive, loving thing to do. But what happens in a 12-step meeting is people just let you sit there with it.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: and, and they may acknowledge in their own chair, yeah, you know, I, I'm familiar with that. That resonates with me. But the goal isn't to Talk you out of your feelings. Mm-hmm. It's it's to help you uh, deal with your feelings and not use, and that's yeah. a really different kind of um, dynamic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and so even even the theology though of um, surrendering to, you know, what, what 12 step refers to as, you know, a higher power of God of your yeah. own, own understanding or whatever. Um, a lot of Christians, I mean, my first sponsor told me this up front. Um, if you think you've got the God piece figured out here, um, because you had a particular experience at nine years old in <laughs> a Baptist yeah. church in Evansville, Indiana, yeah. um, you, we just need to put that up on the shelf and add back what, we know later, um, <clears throat> excuse me, eventually, because, um, this is not what we mean by surrender, you know? Yeah. Um, right. and, and so help help us talk about the, the, is it a conflicting theology or is it just a theology that we, we get this timestamp on it as Christians and we think we can, uh, do not pass go on the first step? <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So I'll just talk about it personally for me. So it's not only had I been uh, in a church for a long time, not only, not only had I been a church goer, I was also an ordained minister and I had a PhD in religion. And it was my job, you know, to teach mm-hmm. religion. So I was, of course, an expert in every aspect of the God question. And um, luckily, I heard the very first uh, National Association of Christian Recovery meeting I went to, and that's, I think, where I met you, right? there was a guy there who was also a pastor who told a story about his own struggle with the second step. And uh, w- the way I remember the story is he had this sort of biker sponsor, you know, atheist mm-hmm. <laughs> guy. And, and uh, he said to this guy who's a pastor, you know, your problem is that you haven't, you know, you haven't really done the second step. And his response was, "Dude, I've got a freaking PhD in the second step." He said, "Yeah, I know that's your problem, <laughs> right?" So, yeah. in some ways, our our Christian background, our our um, you know history of, of experience in the church or wherever can can be a can be unhelpful. I don't know that it's contradictory, but what it encourages us to do is to think that because we've been to church, uh, because we've led. Bible studies because we've got this credential that we understand what it means to trust and to turn our life and our will over to a higher power. There's really nothing, was nothing in my experience that emphasized that radical trust that, that is called for by steps two and three. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about what you knew, what you could recite, you know, mm-hmm. what, what rituals you could participate in. But when it comes right down to it, none, none of the credentials or experiences really help you uh, make that existential move of trusting your life and turning over your life and your will to a higher power. Yeah. And I think, I think that's really, for a lot of people, where they, they become, it becomes a spiritual awakening. And then, the, and then it is, you know, how do I transfer that? How do I translate that into my? uh, my, my Christian life or my life as a, as a person of faith. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, it tends to change the, it's a paradigm change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. And, um, I think I, I learned that surrender for me was more letting what is real be real, um, as opposed to trying to manufacture some, some concept of um you know just uh pretending that something is not so so bad and dropping it off at god's doorstep you know but right. i just had to learn that this this is what's true let's sit in it for a while let's see how we got here what are the things that we um, we're trying to maintain. And, and for me, I realized it was, it was trying to maintain a persona that was in a lot of ways, keeping me sick, almost like it was almost like an old belief system was still keeping me sick. And when I tried to articulate that to other, uh, you know, church people, I sounded like I was, um, uh I sounded like I was calling them toxic or something. And that really wasn't yeah. what I what I meant. I feel like you've done a good job of articulating kind of that um I don't know if it's a dilemma, but you know, that 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 place, that that weird place um in in what you wrote. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I talk in the book about step zero. And um for Christians I think there is a step zero. Before, you know, we were powerless, it's I'm not fine. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I think one of the things that deters Christians from getting into recovery is this um, inability to to admit that they're not fine. Right. Mm-hmm. What will happen if I'm not fine? What will happen mm-hmm. if I'm if I don't have if the family doesn't look good? Um, mm-hmm. And I think there are just a lot of we, we we associate, you know, religious membership with piety and respectability and all these things that um, simply aren't, uh, required and, and, and get in the way of recovery. So there's this disconnect between the, um, the I'm fine, uh, sort of implicit, you know, sort of statement that you make when you're in church and the I'm not fine, which is the Mm
1: -hmm. implicit
2: and explicit message of going to a 12 step meeting, right? Clearly you're not fine or you wouldn't be there. Um, and there's just a huge difference between uh, those starting points. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think people in churches are necessarily toxic, but I do find it really difficult to be in a church group where people are just out of touch with their feelings. They're out of touch with with what's really going on. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like it's okay to struggle. Um, it just feels, it feels like a place I don't want to be. Mm-hmm. It feels like a place that's not real, that's not authentic. Mm-hmm. And so I've decided that I, I'm i going to do whatever I can to sort of transform the church into the kind of place where I want to be. Make it more like an A meeting. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it takes more than one person. It takes kind of a critical mass of people in recovery. Yeah, and We have a critical mass of people in our church. And I think we're slowly trying to do that. Yeah. Um, but it's I, I don't. There's no roadmap really, and I talk in the book about a lot of different models for for doing it. You know, there's some churches have recovery ministries, uh, some churches have recovery ministers, some churches have a celebrate recovery meeting, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a Christianized version of AA. Personally, mm-hmm. I don't think that works very well because it just sort of shunts all the people with problems over in yeah. a certain room on a weeknight. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know. Uh, the best way to sort of make uh, make recovery sort of part of the church's identity. But I think that's what, I think that's that's the goal that I see.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and when I first saw your title of the book, it brought me to a, a, a second question that kind of um, it, for me was a little bit more of a scary question. <laughs> and that is, does the church want to be more like an AA meeting? you know, and I know when we say the church, that's a broad swipe of, uh, you know, of things and folks, Yeah. but, um, does the church want to be more like an AA meeting? I mean, if we, um, if we, if we were to do that, we'd have to understand that the, that the 12 step, uh, program is not just a bunch of people trying to stop doing bad things or harmful right. things or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a little bit how, um, recovery is perceived sometimes by the church and a little bit through a moral, yeah. moral lens, uh, but d- does the church want to be more like an AA meeting?
2: Well, probably not. <laughs> Most churches probably don't.
1: It's a little bit I of a rhetorical are, question, isn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I wish it did in general, but I think there are people who have discovered recovery who, who don't want to give up church and want, mm-hmm. to, want to see church um, be a place where the authenticity and brokenness and all the things we've been discussing you know, are present and are possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to know how to get there. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit scary because when people start being honest about stuff, um, mm-hmm. how are others going to react? I say in the book that, you know, th- there's a sort of sliding scale of stigma about addiction as well, right? So there's oh, yeah. maybe we've gotten to the point where somebody who claims alcoholism, you know, isn't shunned from polite society. They, are seen as a respectable person who happens to be an alcoholic. But what happens when you get to drug addiction and sex addiction and so forth? And Mm -hmm. it really, it really becomes a little, a little scary to be, um, to acknowledge that in a, in a church community. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure everybody's, everybody's signed up for that. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So I think so, what I find is that people who church people who aren't necessarily in recovery, but have some interaction with recovery communities, they, they go for a class or they, mm. they visit temporarily. They come away with this idea of the church needs to be more like this, but they don't really know how to accomplish that. And they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of aware that there's a, there's a disconnect there. Yeah. Yeah. The, the two communities are not, not the same. Right.
1: And uh, I think for a while I I sort of hoped, and I don't I don't know if I think this as much anymore. But I had sort of hoped that maybe recovering people would be kind of what the church's future looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, because as as and I, I don't want to get into too many rabbit holes rabbit trails here, but as the church in many in many areas in many ways has become more um, politicized, and um, certainly has a certain Uh, profile in some ways for some, Mm. um, backgrounds, denominations or whatever. Um, and as evangelicals have taken on some, somewhat of a different posture in the culture, uh, in the last little bit. Um, I wonder if that's, if, if there's room for the recovering mind, Mm. uh, mindset in that kind of a culture anymore.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The politicization of the church does seem to militate against, uh, you know, recovery and and church being recovery friendly. I think what helps me when I think about recovery is that it's a way of life. Right. And, um, you know, Bill W. said this really early on that that he, AA, was more than just a place for recovering alcoholics. It was a way of life that could be transformative for a lot of people. A lot of different people in different situations. Um, I'll tell you one thing about recovery. I've discovered there's a lot more f- political diversity in my recovery circles than there is in my church. Right. So uh, I, I'm in recovery circles with people who are just from a political standpoint, way, way far from me and, and mm-hmm. bordering on some craziness, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really come up because we're so committed to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, each other's sobriety and because we trust each other and uh, my sponsor is a guy who, um, you know, we're really different uh, in, in a lot of ways, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. really interfere because our focus is sobriety and and loving and supporting each other. Mm -hmm. And I just find that an amazing model. I wish my church in some ways were as diverse as, as uh, you know, the 12 step groups I attend. Um, Yeah. There's this, there's this commitment to, to honesty and to, humility and gratitude that sort of um, supersedes those things, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I often feel like one of the things I like about recovery, like you said, is the diversity. You have to go in and listen to people who think differently, who believe differently, mm-hmm. who have a lot of different life experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in, in just... Christian recovery circles or Christianized recovery circles, my experience has been that's a place where people very often just bring their persona into a different room. You know, they still, the person they bring to church is the person they bring to Christian recovery and they all share a certain theology and an ideal Mm -hmm. way of, you know, living and being, which is fine. But, um, but the diversity that i experienced Mm -hmm. was so, um, jarring in a good way to me. Mm -hmm. And it made me look at God uh, through a much broader lens, you know? Yeah. Um, Wow. Here's a person who doesn't identify the same way I do about a lot of things. Wouldn't call himself the same thing I do in a lot of ways, but they're experiencing God in a very profound way in their lives.
2: Yeah. And there are a lot of people in, in the meetings I go to that have had a lot of religious trauma Mm -hmm. and, so they may have started out in a place similar to to where to where I am in terms of their religious identity, but they've really gotten uh, they're they're sort of defining themselves over against that. So that's a real challenge to exist in in fellowship with people like that. I find that twelve step um, organizations fellowships make it possible to do. Um, I mean, I've seen it happen, but you know you have to be careful and you have to be. You have to remember, you know, that your language about higher power may be triggering for somebody else. But Mm -hmm. um, there's much more, I think, awareness of religious diversity and and uh, respect for people's doubts and problems Mm -hmm. than there than you find in most churches. I just find that really interesting. And I don't think the intellectual piece is quite so important. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not necessary to prove that you're right or defend God, you know, in some way it's, it's more open. Yeah.
1: Well, you mentioned in the book that the hierarchy of AA, for instance, doesn't resemble the the church. Anybody can lead an AA meeting, for instance, or a 12 step meeting. And, um, the, um, there's not a high focus on trying to make sure your theology is corrected in your comment or in your share, whatever that would have been. And, um, Is the church able to relax some of their, um, I don't don't know, need to be right um, (laughs) so that people can experience their feelings and express them in an open, honest way without being corrected?
2: Yeah, it takes a real effort. It takes it takes ground rules. And I think, you know, um, you'd have to just have some of the same rules you have in in 12 step meetings about Mm -hmm you know no crosstalk and things like that. I think the other thing that makes it difficult for churches to pull this off is that there's this emphasis on trained leadership, right? Only mm-hmm. the pastor or somebody who's been through a training program or who's been designated, you know, uh, uh, competent to lead something is able to to lead it. And I think that's mm-hmm. wrong-headed. I think that's it's certainly not the way um, the way 12 steps meeting meetings work. And the more that I have studied this, the more I realized that it's not just that um, they thought that the expertise wasn't necessary. It was really, in the early days, it was really intentional because there's a bunch of people who saw themselves as leaders and saw themselves as, you know, right and or, or marketers and were people who wanted to lead and they needed to control for that. And the way they controlled for it was, we don't use last names. We don't talk about what we do. We don't introduce ourselves in terms of, you know, our job title. And, mm-hmm. and we don't assume that any of us um, has the authority or the right to, to lead just because they've been around a while. And so when you try to translate that to a church environment, it's tough. You know, typically what happens is that the pastors want to come in if, they, if they're interested in, you know, getting some recovery ministry started. They want to come in and lead. Mm-hmm. Um, when they need to just be quiet, and listen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, that they probably have as much to learn as anybody from these meetings. So I really, I'm of the opinion that I think the only way for for this to work in churches is to have uh, uh, recover, have people be in recovery at the highest levels, mm-hmm. either a minister of recovery or a head minister, or at least have people who are willing to submit themselves to the discipline of of recovery um, in a learning posture so that, um, they don't end up churchifying it. Mm -hmm. That's the danger. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I talk, I talk in the book a lot about celebrate recovery and partly because it's just so, uh, it's so ubiquitous and it's, it's Mm -hmm. got something like 30,000 different meetings and, Mm-hmm. I did a lot of studying of church uh, of celebrity recovery. I went to uh several mm-hmm. meetings, but I also went to their summit in uh at Saddleback Church. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some things they really do well. And the thing I'm most impressed by is that they they've sort of changed the way you introduce yourself <laughs> in a church meeting. Mm-hmm. You um you you'd say, you know, I'm Steve, and I uh struggle with alcoholism or something like that right so you mm-hmm. you lead with with weakness you lead with with um with your uh your your problem mm-hmm. um but in other ways i think they tend to churchify uh recovery they want to make aa more like church rather than the other way around Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's too bad. And and one of the ways and I'll just say this, um, cut it out if you want to. But (laughs) um, one of the things they do is this relentless marketing and and merchandise sales. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's something it's hard to imagine Bill W or or Dr. Bob, you know, understanding that Mm -hmm. that you would be trying to expand and promote and and sell and market constantly. It it's mm-hmm. just seems a real violation of the spirit of AA. And so I wonder if it's possible for the church to really adopt a 12-step approach to things without, without translating into something that church people understand and are comfortable with. I think that's a constant struggle. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think what I'm hearing you say, too, is that um, the church can be kind of formulaic and we like yeah. formula. We like structure. Yeah. You know, we like a plan of, um, you know, here's here's how God works. Here's how the church works. Yeah. Here's how we work, you know, and, yeah. and you and I both know that um, addiction and unwanted behaviors and all this compulsion, that's messy. You know, Mm -hmm. and we can be doing well and then we're not doing well and we can be, um, you know, surrendering and then we're not surrendering and then it doesn't turn out well. And that's perceived as a relapse or a setback or, um, you know, as one uh, pastor tried to articulate to me uh, regarding a client we were working with was that, you know, it was in his mind, habitual sin. You know, unrepentant, Mm. unrepentant, habitual sin was this guy's problem, this client's problem. And I was just, I was, I was really, I mean, at the core of it, I was disappointed, um, you know, to hear that because sin in, I don't even, I don't even know how to really talk about sin anymore, frankly. Yeah. Um, But it isn't that this guy is, this guy is living out of a place that he feels like it's not okay to be him anymore or it wasn't ever yeah. safe to be him and his trauma yeah. happened and it informed a lot of things and all these, you know, all these things are underneath all this. And, and when he gets triggered by certain things, he still acts out in a certain way. And, yeah, uh, yeah it probably would fall into immoral, <laughs> you know, behavior. But, um, but the thing that happens is he, he gets longer stretches and they're, and his yeah. relapses are fewer apart, and his acting yeah. out takes on a different tone, and he's able at times to talk himself back from it. and And so, over yeah. this year, we see this really great progression. I know I'm kind of preachy right at this moment, but it it hits me because um, because it's got to be okay for him to go. Oh God, you know, I I really I really fell off the wagon or whatever I want to call it last week when I, or dove off the wagon on purpose, maybe, um, when I, when I got so resentful and didn't do anything about it, but let it fester and yeah. I, it led me to entitlement and I, you know, drank or acted out or did this or that. And, um, I just have to keep remembering that's not going to be, you know, he goes into his thing, but, but in, in church situations, I don't, no, if we get to do that, I guess is my long-ass way of saying yeah. that. Um is
2: that well you're right. The messy is the term you used was messy, and I think that's one of the reasons that church culture is is not really compatible to recovery very well. Recovery is messy. Mm-hmm. Life is messy. You know, mm-hmm. my life is messy, and mm-hmm. that comes out in meetings in ways that can make people uncomfortable, right? I'm very honest about this or that. Mm-hmm. Um and um you know the the connection with sin is interesting. One of the things I talk about in the book is how um if you really think about uh addiction the relationship between addiction and sin, you have to um, you have to look more deeply into the Christian tradition to really um accommodate addiction it it doesn't It doesn't really yield to this analysis that you describe of you know mm-hmm. intentional you know unrepentant sin, that's, you, you got to go back to Augustine and this idea of sin as this this sort of underlying um, defect in our nature that, mm. that doesn't go away and that, you know, keeps popping up. So I, I think, you know, sin talk and addiction talk are compatible as long as you don't have a simplistic, um, shallow understanding of sin, which unfortunately a lot of Christians do.
1: Mm-hmm. Kind of a list of misdeeds that pisses got yeah. off kind of stuff.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so there, there are people who are trying to um, use addiction and sin language to try to, you know, have them inform one another. And I, I think they do. If you think about sin, the way you think about addiction, I mean, there are a lot of similarities, right? It's something mm-hmm. that is, is cunning, baffling and powerful that keeps, that keeps finding a way to, um, you know, to, to reveal itself in your life, even when you're not, you're not wanting it to. So,
1: yeah. So Steve, when, when we are, you know, so frustrated with our Christian communities and feel that these things are um, kind of in place and work against in a way, um, some of the things we have experienced in recovery, what's, you know What are a couple of first steps people can take in their communities, uh, those who are still in, in Christian communities or faith communities, yeah. um, and um, to kind of open doors for uh, safe safety to recovering people?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. For me, it was outing myself in my church community, and I know that's not mm-hmm. something that everybody wants to do, and I, I'm a volunteer member of the pastoral staff, so it's not like my livelihood. Mm -hmm. You know, is rests on whether people accept that. But it was an important step for me because it sort of normalized uh, recovery as a thing that people do, even people who are, you know, uh, have leadership positions and who, um, you know, are established in the church. And so that was really important. And that's led to a lot of opportunities to talk about it. In fact, I remember the first time I sort of came out was in a Sunday summer Sunday school thing, and afterwards there was a long line of people waiting to talk to me, and I didn't know what they wanted to say. I was a little worried, but a lot mm. of them were like, "Hey, I've been in recovery for 20 years. I just didn't feel like I'd ever tell anybody." So wow. it turned out that this sort of you know opened the door for a lot of people to acknowledge. You know, one guy mm-hmm. that I'd known for many years handed me a card that said "friend of, of uh, friend of Bill W." <laughs> Yeah. You know, so um, that was just really revealing. And so that's one step. Um, you know, one of the things churches have done really well in the past is provided spaces for 12 step meetings to meet, but there's, right. there's there's no necessary connection between mm-hmm. the mission of the church and those things. Right. Um, so there, there has to be some way of, Bridging that gap, and I don't know exactly what it is. One of the problems is people don't like necessarily going to twelve step meetings at their own churches. Mm-hmm. But um, if if there can be a sort of intentional um, embrace of twelve step recovery as a natural thing, as something that that virtually every family will need at some point, um, a kind of normalizing of recovery and treatment and those things, uh, I think that can be real positive. Mm-hmm. and and then the acknowledgement of messiness. I mean, I that's a big one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not a process. The, yeah. It's not the Sunday school class model that everybody's going to go and um, <laughs> maybe uh, not be a little uncomfortable at times or something. Yeah. So, um,
2: yeah. well, and I've gotten some invitations to teach Sunday school classes on the 12 steps, which I've done. And so that's, that's, you know, people kind of come and they're interested and they want to, you know, they want to understand why uncle Bill, you know, goes to meet, goes off to meetings, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so there, I think there are opportunities for education, but it's a, I, I don't think there are any, there's any roadmap You kind of feel your way in your own, your own situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I speak sometimes to, um, groups from different churches, different denominations and, um, share my story and talk about recovery and, um, inevitably it's family members too, who want, who sincerely want to know, what is helpful? What is not helpful? Yeah, Some of the right. ways we've approached this person, this loved one, um, is obviously not helpful. Help us yeah. know, you know, our, our space in, in this as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, being good Christian fixers, we've, Tend yeah. to don't not understand why our uh, uh, struggling loved one isn't responding to that, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, but I but I do think that you know just speaking our truth as recovering people within the faith communities that we're in um, normalizes it somewhat. I yes. think that's part of it too. Is just you know this is not uh, this is not some really weird foreign thing that people do on other planets. You know, yeah. <laughs> this is every every level of. Uh, our, our culture and our ourselves that, that we, that we can uh, imagine. So, yeah. um, well, so, so Stephen, just before we wrap up, um, are you, um, this may be a, I don't mean put you on the spot, but are you optimistic? That churches can turn a corner and be a little bit um, more of a place of vulnerability? Do you think that maybe even the reality of the pandemic and Mm -hmm. the way it's impacted people, even going back to church, you know, people, some people are not missing it so much? (laughs) Yeah.
2: I am optimistic for a couple of reasons. One is the pandemic, and I think what it reveals about. How endemic addiction is to our society. I just heard this morning that something like a hundred thousand people had, dry, had died of drug overdoses um, mm-hmm. in t- 2020 or maybe mm-hmm. between mid 2020 and 2021. I mean, it, which is mm-hmm. far more than the past. So clearly it's a problem that's not going away. It's been made, made worse. And it's not just drug abuse. It's alcohol, alcoholism, pornography addiction, all those things. So, um, the more people that are affected by it, the more. I guess um the more uh natural it seems to deal with it. Um and I think I just think over time more and more people are gonna ask the question in the title of the book, right? They mm-hmm. they have these experiences like I did. I was like 50 something when I finally started to get into recovery. But um, you know, so it can happen at any time in life, and people are gonna start demanding that their churches, you know, Show some recognition of recovery and and maybe reflect recovery a little more, so I guess I'm optimistic that um, as recovery becomes normalized in society, that it will be something more and more that the church needs to respond to,
1: yeah well. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Thanks, I David. Appreciate love, the, the time. Yeah, absolutely. I love the book. And so if people wanted to get in touch with you or wanted to get the book, again, the book is Why Can't Church Be More Like an AA Meeting? And Other Questions, uh, other questions Christian Asked About Recovery. And the book is published by Erdman's Publishing. Where can we get it?
2: We can get it anywhere. Uh, Amazon is probably the best place. Um mm-hmm if you have a local bookstore that's open and <laughs> they may have it <laughs> uh-huh. um, probably the easiest way is to get it online. Um, and if anybody wants to contact me, um, my emails on the Rhodes college website, I'm easy to find, uh, I'd be happy to discuss anything about the book that interests you.
1: Well, that's uh, that's great. And it's a, it's a great book and worth the time. So I encourage our yeah. our listeners to take advantage of that. So. Well, folks, thank you for listening today. It's been another great visit with another great guest. And uh, Stephen, we will wrap up here for today. But thank you again so much for your time. And listeners, we will be right back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast podcast. Um, so Nate, uh, that was a big conversation with a college (laughs) professor slash theologian slash, uh, ordained, uh, person slash struggling recovery person. And, uh, what do you think about, uh, this whole premise about, uh, you know, where, where Stephen Hayes uh, just, uh, you know, wanted to kind of take the conversation and, um, move toward a, uh. You know, it's kind of a delicate thing for a lot of a lot of Christians in recovery to yeah. talk about uh, the despairing things that they see between the two uh, entities that are supposedly their their spiritual anchors, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I do think I, I love that Stephen is just a matter of fact guy. Mm-hmm. He's a deep thinker, but he doesn't seem to be uh overly idealistic. I think he's realistic about right. the challenges that we face in trying to, uh, you know, make, take the better parts, uh, of AA and somehow reintroduce them to the church. I really do think that it's time to recover recovery for the church. Mm-hmm. Um, 12 step recovery was born out of Christian experience in the American church. Um, And um, you know, it's it's it's. I I understand that uh, you know the original twelve steppers, those AAers, in the very first generation, they had to, you know, they their churches. I mean, their initial meetings were essentially Bible studies. They read out of a devotional called Daily Bread. It was very, very Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, the Oxford group, or mm-hmm. the Oxford, yeah, the Oxford movement, I guess it was called, uh, came out of Methodism. <laughs> uh, but what they found was that their conversation degenerated so quickly into doctrinal squabbles. Right. That uh, in order to maintain, you know, the focus on recovery and uh, you know, an honesty and to maintain a safe community, they had to set doctrine aside and they had to really open the door widely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's when I suppose the meetings moved to the basement of the church in the middle of the week while all the good people are gone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, people are gone. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: and it's a, it's a shame because I I've seen this reaction countless times when I've taken people to twelve step meetings. When I've taken Christians to twelve step meetings, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I almost inevitably get the same response. Mm-hmm. They're just blown away, and they go, "Wait, why aren't we doing this?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I think it's, um, you know, when you go to a 12 step meeting, your, your addiction, your recovery, isn't a moral issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's not a sin issue really, um, Mm -hmm. whatever all that means to someone. Um, and so it's, I think hard to share in a situation, um, where your behavior is going to be moralized. Or yeah, uh, scrutinized right. under a moral lens or a sin lens and judged, you know, uh, as, 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 uh, <laughs> you know, a, a part of your, as a part of your, I don't know, your spiritual thermometer or something.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, the, and there's a timetable, a very strict timetable for uh, repentance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, all right. So I can, let's say I can confess a sin. Here's my struggle. We're going to, uh, here's my sin, whatever it is. I'm going to confess it. Uh, now the clock runs, uh, you know, in churches I grew up with, you just go down front and, uh, you know, pray a prayer, give it to God, whatever. And and now you've repented and you've turned around and you're not going to do it again.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've had churches. Uh, I've had churches pull support from clients that I work with yeah, because yeah. they perceived relapse as habitual sin, unrepentant right. habitual sin.
0: Yeah, and yeah. they
1: feel like, well, you know, he's obviously not repentant, or he wouldn't keep going back. Right. You know, so why are we paying you?
0: <laughs> it hurts. It hurts my heart to see it. I, I got really angry actually, one Sunday going to a church where. You know, the pastor was preaching against a porn and lust. And uh, so he invited anybody, you know, who wanted to, you know, repent of that sin, to come down, give it to God, you know, surrender, turn around. And I saw so many um, sincere young men. It was almost exclusive. I guess it was exclusively men that uh, pitched toward men. Mm -hmm. even though porn is no longer simply a male plague, Mm -hmm. um, come down and, you know, sincerely make, what they were doing was they were making a a resolution. Mm -hmm. They were making a promise. Mm -hmm. And then the preacher assured them that they were never going to have to do it again. They were never going to do it again. And let's all... Now let's have a song of celebration, and God <laughs> has done marvelous things today. And these men are free. Yeah! Wow. And I, and, and and I know that that's a setup mm-hmm. for disappointment, and condemnation, mm-hmm. self doubt, self hatred. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that I begged God for years for. For forgiveness that was already mine Mm -hmm. Uh, because of flawed theology, I didn't understand uh, that I had a forgiving God Mm -hmm. Uh, and that what I really needed was healing Mm -hmm. and healing, although it occasionally can come instantaneously, miraculously in that kind of way. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Healing, miraculous as it is, typically takes time. It is progressive. Mm-hmm. It takes patience and it takes time and it takes the right atmosphere, uh, the right treatment, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, what I found in the 12-step rooms
1: was healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. My addiction taught me more about myself than um, yeah. in, in my answer-driven paradigms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we, when I started delving in, um, but yeah. So, um, I, I think, I think Stephen's book is going to be a, a welcomed thing for a lot of people who have had this experience. A lot of evangelicals that have felt torn between maybe, uh, some of their church experiences and Mm -hmm. their 12 step, uh, dilemmas, Mm -hmm. and at least give people permission to put some language to what they might be experiencing. I hope. Right. Yeah, so, I hope so. Too. Yeah, so I appreciate yeah. what he's doing.
0: Hey, before we go, do remind us, if you will, David, of uh, uh, the sponsor for the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well,
1: we have our sponsor, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com, and again, this is where you can go online and access licensed uh, therapy, licensed counseling. And uh, there are a host of licensed counselors there at BetterHelp.com to take your uh, case, if you want to call it that, um, to take you on as a story that needs to be told. And you can do this from your own home, from the privacy of your anywhere, uh, from your own devices. And uh, it's a subscription. And if you sign on as BetterHelp.com Positive Sobriety, You'll receive a discount on your initial subscription. And that will also let us know that our resources are uh, something that people can take advantage of. And we know many of you have. And um, this is a great opportunity for you to go into, especially this season maybe, where uh, you may feel alone, isolated, uh, some depression. Things are not uh, looking as festive this year for a number of reasons. And BetterHelp.com can help you uh, access that person that uh, can hear you and uniquely um, speak back into your world. So again, BetterHelp.com/positive sobriety. Wonderful. Okay, well
0: that about wraps it
1: for this episode. Uh,
0: we do love to hear from you. Once again, the way to reach us is simply to send an email to positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, until next time, then, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety
1: Podcast.
0: The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rick Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford.